Now we don't have any value. Time to play a game. Are you ready for the game? Oh, you know I love games. Oh yeah, we all we're both gamers, you might say. Um, the game is called "How Many Severians Are There?" Mm. And mm, I love this it, game. Yeah, and the way it works is you can just pick a number, and you're probably right. Uh, it just depends on which reading you want to kind of do. So, yeah, an interesting discussion about this uh, prior to recording, where uh, we have a vast disagreement on certain potential Severians. Look, Father Rineri is not Severian. Look, I'm just saying, given the time loop stuff, he could be. He could, he be. could, he be. could, he could be anyone, but I don't <laughs> think... It... Anyway, hello, everyone. <laughs> I'm a truther. I'm a Severian truther. I run I'm... into you. Until you prove you're not Severian, you might be. You're on the list. I'm no Severian curious. <laughs> that's, a, that's a deep cut for you guys. For your tinfoil heads out there. Um, I mean, 9-11 wasn't inside job. That's not tinfoil. But yeah. moving on. Hello. Welcome to Death Sentences. What are we calling this? Deep dive? Exegesis? Something. Uh, exploration of the Book of the New Sun. This is episode number... Well, depends how you count it, because we had to do like a Gene Wolfe kind of weird timeline <laughs> thing. It's either the third episode, if you count episode zero, or the second episode, if you don't, of this series. If you haven't heard the first one, this will be even more confusing. If you have heard the first one, this will just be confusing. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I just want to get something out there before we do a recap, and then we, we start to um, record. We got some feedback from someone who's like listens to the Eden expanded universe of podcasts um, and who I love to death. He's a great guy. You know, some of the, some of the stuff on the previous episodes might've been a bit hard to follow or like confusing and stuff like that. And I just wanted to say, I really respect that feedback, but we're not going to do anything about that. Yeah. Um, and it's, 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 it's not because we, we talked about that feedback too. I mean, like we took it seriously. Yeah. We're chatting about it. And we just, we both sort of, um, with this, one, one, our general modus operandi is, is much more rhizomatic here than elsewhere, uh, which is a fancy way of saying it unfurls and it unfurls and it unfurls. Um, the, uh, the slightly more specific thing is with this book in specific, I don't, um, people have been trying for decades to put things into like a single yeah. through line. Like, I mean, like seriously, you, you can find online wikis yeah. where people have attempted to make, and I say attempted because I haven't really succeeded yet. I mean, it's not just wikis. Like, you have literal podcasts who are entirely dedicated to this book, and they started, like, in, in one case, like, four years ago, and they're just now getting to the third one because they spent so much time on all the details and the splintering off of storylines and and stuff like that so all of which to say we are not intentionally being obtuse or <laughs> fragmented and it's not just the book of the new sun episodes in general we tend to pick literature which is challenging and we had this whole discussion on house of leaves you know with um 
cybernetic texts, uh, ergodic texts, texts which aren't you know straightforward to read. I mean that opens up a whole discussion of whether the Book of the New Sun is a cybernetic text, which I think is interesting. Um, uh, it is, by the way. Um, yeah, it is. The answer is but, yes. <laughs> yes, but how we get to that answer, I think, is an yeah. interesting discussion. We might we might have it one day in the future. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's it's just if we tried to be clear and concise on this, um, it would take us literal years. And we don't want to do that. Uh, that reminds me of like the famous uh, Pascal, the mathematician, famous letter that he wrote and he opened it with, apologies for not writing you a shorter letter. I didn't have the time. <laughs> uh, right? So being, me, being concise is more time consuming than not. And therefore, honest to God, we will do our best. The, the, <laughs> the last thing I want to say before we get on the recap, kind of like meta, uh, People have written to us that they have read the books following the episodes, which is amazing and why we do it. And yeah. I recommend it to everyone listening to this. Like, there are things that we don't know that I have no idea how to answer. We'll come across many more of them during this episode because the second book is uh, starts to get more experimental. <laughs> um, there's no substitute for reading the book of the new sun yourself there, there is no substitute and and i'm sorry to say reading it several times um doesn't matter how good the podcast is how good the uh apocryphal text you're reading or wiki or how much you read on reddit and believe me i've read a lot on <laughs> reddit there's no substitute for the book itself mainly because you know i'm reading um sort of the lictor now and Soda the Lictor has some of the most beautiful nature descriptions of the entire series. And we're not going to touch on them at all. Like, you're not going to get the same aesthetic experience from this podcast as you would when you read, uh, when you when you would read Soda the Lictor or Shadow of the Conciliator or any of the other, um, Shadow of the Conciliator, Shadow of the Torturer or Claw of the Conciliator. The, the books themselves, beyond all this uh, mumbo jumbo, they're just very good aesthetic work. So, I encourage actually, you to, yeah. It it actually raises a uh, an interesting question about like um, criticism and these kinds of meta texts in general, me like us being a meta text specifically. Of at best, a critic's job is to twist around the kaleidoscope of a piece of work and to find patterns and shapes within you know the shifting images and relay those as best that we can. But yeah. by necessity this is attenuating that initial thing step by step by step. Sometimes this leads to greater insight. And that's, you know, what, what we, everyone kind of hopes criticism will do, whether it be their own or stuff that they read. But ultimately, and this is very important to remember also, when, even when thinking of critics as like getting mad at them when they have like weird wackadoo opinions or something like that, that they are effectively very well-trained laymen who like a thing. Yeah, And so they're just backing up Eden's point that no matter how good a critic is, nothing will be experiencing a thing. You know, the best we can do is be like, here's some stuff that, that we resonated with. Um, yeah. So just to be clear, the criticism is fine. We accept yeah. it. Please keep it coming. <laughs> um, this is not to pick on you. Listener, you know who you are. Um, 
it's fine. Everything's okay. Just keep it in mind when we keep going. It's only <laughs> going to get more complicated from here. We're going to fail you. We don't want to, but yeah. we're going to. Yeah. Okay. So All right, let's, let's recap. <laughs> let's recap. I'm going to do it so super fast. There's a guy called Severian. He is an orphan who was brought up in a city called Nessus. By the way, I got it totally wrong last time when I said that it's Rio de Janeiro. Um, it's, uh, it's Argentina. No, sorry, the opposite. I said it's Argentina. Not? It's Brazil. Um, and it's it's Rio de Janeiro for... Or is that what I said? I'm, I'm confused. Anyway, no, it's in so Brazil. It, we, we, we said it was Rio de Janeiro, but they, he has a map that puts it where Chile is, but that map is only in one edition of the book, and it hasn't ever been reprinted in other editions. Yeah. That's so, a whole thing. That's a whole thing. Um, <laughs> um, it's very clear that, you know... Um, it sorry bonus series that's what i meant to say um the reason is that nessus is a centaur right killed by hercules whose tainted blood then poisons hercules right so the implication is that when bonus Ares, which means good air was poisoned by pollution or by a weapon or just the decay of time it became nessus right which is now the Gayol, the river that runs through it, is several times uh, described as dirty and poisoned and um, unclean in several places. So he's in this city becoming a torturer and he betrays his guild. He falls in love with one of the victims to be tortured and is exiled. On the way on his exile, he encounters sundry and various figures including some that he resurrects. Uh, he resurrects himself once and not twice. He doesn't resurrect himself in the river, and the uh, sort of the lector confirms that. Yeah. He, also, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he meets people who might be related to him, unbeknownst to him, like his father, his grandmother, cousins, and so on, and um, finds himself in all sorts of predicaments. The book ends when Severian alongside a troupe of circus performers, including Dorcas, his grandmother, which he resurrected, Talos, who is a robot, Bald Anders, who is this genetic manipulation giant thing who created... He might, he might be a Lovecraftian monster from space. Yeah, he might be, or nascent at least, who yeah. created Talos, and um, Jonas who we will talk about extensively <laughs> during this episode, and Jolenta, who we will also um, talk about, maybe not as extensively, but certainly uh, some. They leave the city, and as they are passing through this massive gate in the wall of Nessus with all the soldiers of the Utark, who is the guy that rules the entire land, they are something happens. They are accosted, they are beset, there is some sort of commotion, and then the book just ends in the middle of the scene and last time we asked you to try and think about why the book ends where it does and we won't answer that now i think we'll answer it at the end because there are a few more skips and they all happen for the same reason uh so that's another tidbit in case you guys want to uh think on why those skips happen so when the book starts that is Claw of the Conciliator, the second book in the Book of the New Sun, 
we are in a village called Saltus. And that name should like uh, spring all sorts of alarms in your head because it's of course derived from the Latin word to leap. So there are a few, I, th I think, readings of why it's called Saltus. One, because we just leapt over the story, right? There was a lapse and then we found ourselves in this village. But also because I think this village is on the cusp of Severian starting to meet his true purpose and true destiny and true powers in the world. It is a jumping off point outside of Nessus into the wide uh, world of the Book of the New Sun. It also winds up structurally referring... <laughs> This is going to happen a hell of a lot. It structurally refers to all of the Book of the New Sun as well. Yes. It's very tempting to read Shadow of the Conciliator, the first book, as sort of the, of the torture. fellowship of Shadow of the, the Torture, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as as <laughs> I do not need to confuse people anymore than yeah. they're going to be. Yeah. Um, it's tempting to read that as structurally the fellowship of the rings of this broader tale. And he he absolutely mm -hmm. had read Tolkien. There's lots of Tolkienian reference baked in here other people are better at explicating it but really that's not a surprise this was written in in the 80s uh, lord of the rings came out in the 50s and literally every genre writer ever read and loved it um so it's tempting to think that okay you have you know those those wide pastoral segments and now we get to the action but it's um it turns out especially if you've read book of the long sun and book of the short sun that all of Book of the New Sun is the Fellowship of the Rings of, yeah. of the solar cycle. Um, and so in many ways, as much as the leap, he bakes in these recursive loops as well. That, oh, we mentioned that before, but that's this is another instance of that major recurrent structure that replicates fractally, so big and small, um, that this is the leaping off point of him experiencing moments of destiny. Um but also all of Book of the New Sun, and this will be far more apparent at the end, is itself the tale of beginning to leap. Yeah. Um, this, this is part of what makes it funny to talk about this book, because you walk in thinking this is when things are going to pop off. And they kind of do, but there's so much like walking. Yeah. Like I mean, from place to place so much. Yeah, we made we made a few jokes on our personal Twitter accounts about <laughs> what this book is about, and you can pick you can pick up like any tiny reference you want, like swords, how how cool swords are, or why <laughs> horses should be called destriers and stuff like that. And then I don't remember who, but someone replied and said, "This book is about how cool it is to hike." And <laughs> in many ways, it's very true. And sort of the lictor is even more that. So, oh, yeah. Saltus, remember Severian is in exile, but he has received permission from the masters to practice his craft in order to support himself. Now he's in Saltus with Jonas, who for now at least appears to be very knowledgeable. He, he's kind of like an Aragorn, right? He has this like ranger vibe to him, survivalist, he knows what's going on. He, Severian and Jonas have a lot of back and forth kind of dialogues where Severian asks him a lot of questions and Jonas knows a lot but is not willing to divulge all that he knows. So that's where Jonas is right now but we're in Saltus because Severian is scheduled to perform an exhortation as he calls it which is basically ritual torture and then execution. 
Now, while he is there, a few things end up happening before the execution. And the first one is that a bunch of soldiers, because we are headed northward, remember, towards the battle lines with the Askians, who are some sort of empire to the north that the Utarchy is locked in combat with. Some soldiers are walking through town and they sing a poem. And I'm going to read you the poem now. When I was a lad, my mother said, you dry your tears and go to bed. I know my son will travel far, born beneath a shooting star. In after years, my father said, as he pulled my hair and knocked my head, they mustn't whimper at a skull who are born beneath a shooting star. A mage I met, and the mage, he said, I see for you a future red, fire and riot, raid and war, all born beneath a shooting star. A shepherd I met, and the shepherd said, we sheep must go where we are led, to dawn gate where the angels are, following the shooting star. Now, why the fuck did I spend all that time just reading that to you? Because this is actually the Book of the New Sun. Yes. You just heard <laughs> the entire storyline of the Book of the New Sun in a poem. So uh, the mother is, of course, Severian's missing mother, who he barely recalls. He only recalls her comforting him, just like in the poem. The shooting star is, of course, the dying son, and it will be referred to as a shooting star multiple times from now on. And then the father is the torturer's guild who pulls hair and knocks heads, and then they mustn't whimper at a skull, right? You must do what is necessary, which is execute people and so on. Um, the mage, you can choose which mage you want. It could be the Cumaean, it can be Vodalus or the Utark or a bunch of other people. I go with Inire. That's, that's, that's the one for me. Which one? Inire. Oh, yeah, Father Inire, for sure. Although you already said Father Inire when you said Vodalus. Oh, we'll get there. And, and I also said Utark. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think the father in here is like literally Vodulus, but he's definitely in his pocket. Anyway, so I see for you a future red, fire and right, raid and war. Spoiler, the third book, Severian reaches the battlegrounds to where he goes and participates actively in the war. And then at the end, of course, we sheep must go where we are led. Hints at what we talked about last time, where the Hyrodules are basically manipulating Severian. Right. He is the ship going where, uh, uh, where he is led. And Dawngate, where the angels are, is literally where Severian is going. Um, in Earth of the New Sun, he literally goes to, I don't know what you want to call it, the angel dimension or whatever. <laughs> heaven. He goes to the throne of heaven because he's he, Jesus. It's, right, it's very, yeah. it, he suddenly, Gene Wolf suddenly forgets how to be subtle and he turns us into, what's that called? The Out of the Silent Planet? series yeah. um yeah yeah c.s yeah, lewis it, uh yeah yeah it, it you're like oh oh wow okay yeah this is christian christian um yeah. it's also worth noting in this poem that there is um four quotes from four speakers and each of them structurally replicates the the four books of yep. uh and you even get that with um the mother figure also can be read a bit as dorcas who is like a, a substitute mother figure um, even though he has sex with her a lot and she's his grandmother, whatever. Uh, we've talked <laughs> about that. Um, yeah. Uh, father, um, there's the role of Father Inire in the second book, that, especially if you have my read, which is that Vodalus is Father Inire from the past. Um, 
time loops. <laughs> God damn, I love time loops. Wait, um, that actually then... makes sense. And in that other time loop, uh, in the other alternate timeline, he becomes the Utak, right? Which is why his uh -huh. face is on the coin. Yes. Um, right. Yeah, that's that's how I've always read it. But you know, he he. Are you? How, who are you, knows what? It are is? you confused yet? Are you confused yet? We'll we'll um, get to it. Vodolus coin so, thing, by the way, is one of my favorite things in the entire book. But let's same. move on. So this poem uh, winds up also serving another one of the 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 Christian structures. So as, as we've talked about before, Severian's tale is the tale of of Christ's life, both literally and metaphorically. And the literal aspects are interesting, but perhaps less interesting than the metaphorical ones, depending on your angle. The metaphorical one, the structural one, is that every aspect of it, through a Christian reading of the Bible, every aspect of the Old Testament that couldn't be explained was a foretelling of Christ's life. That's how yeah. all Christians read it. And then everything that happens in Christ's life is a momentous symbolic occasion. It is not just the literal thing in front of you. It's the symbolism of, so the blood into the cup, the cup is like a womb and the blood is the blood of creation, but also uh, the, the essence of life. You know, you, if you read a theology text, um, which I highly encourage you to do. It's fascinating stuff. And mankind spent thousands and thousands of years working on theology. It's just, it's read as caked symbol over symbol over symbol over symbol over symbol. And this poem is another small snapshot of that. The happenstance that he's walking past soldiers that sing a tale that is literally the tale of his life. And again, this is, <laughs> he's told explicitly this is what's happening in Earth of the New Sun, which we may or may not cover. That That's for the future to decide. Um, the angels literally tell him like, oh, no, 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 we did that to, to like give you a heads up because we've been manipulating like your whole life, um, yeah. so, which is fitting with the Christian read of everything that happens here happens to thrust the Christ figure Severian yeah. or to prep him. So let's let's talk about that manipulation. And actually, let's not leave the alternate timelines um, for the future, but actually let's talk about it. <laughs> let's talk about it now. <laughs> because I think it's very important, and it also correlates with the green man. So yeah. here's the thing. It's not, and this is, by the way, something that's, uh, I think, different on, now that I've read, it, read this third reading. It's not so much that Severian travels through time, primarily, is that he also travels to alternate timelines that is it's not just yeah. back and forth on this one rail there are also parallel rails and in i fact, absolutely agree with you and have a thought on that specifically i am stoked you keep going yeah so <laughs> the reason i'm bringing this up now is because severian is about to meet one of his alternate versions for the first time that is, I think the, the green man is the first other Severian that Severian meets. Although I totally agree with you that the mausoleum is the mausoleum of a different Severian. So, and that's that's not quite a meeting, to be fair. So, yeah, exactly. So that's why I don't cut it. So in Saltus, there is a freak show, basically. Sorry about the like ableist language, but that's very much the vibe that Gene Wolfe tries to give it, like like a circus show. Yeah, and he was making... not an unproblematic man. Uh -huh. For sure, and also I think he's making fun of, you know, how 
He's making another point about how humanity has fallen so far that when they see something like the Green Man, they make him into, you know, something to be ridiculed. Yeah. So Severian enters this tent and he meets a Green Man. Now, Green Man, of course, is a pagan uh, symbol. He was one of the gods of the forest. In fact, an incredibly important one that was seen as intricately related to the harvest and the cycle of life. He would die every winter and then be reborn in spring. And it had like that pagan duality that if the green man were somehow to be killed, then the seasons would stop, right? And this green man is like literally made of plant matter and is tied up telling the future. Except I don't think he's telling the future. He's telling alternate timelines. Because the green man is Severian from a different timeline. Now, why do I think that's the case? For two reasons. One, which we'll get to later if we do Earth, because he's literally described as moving across out on the timelines looking for Severian. But the other one is his reaction to the Tinder that Severian gives him to break free of his... Uh, sorry, Whetstone. That Severian gives him to break free from the chains. The Green Man is described like this. Then I saw the knowledge going in him so that he seemed to unfold in his great joy as though he were already basking in the brighter light of his own day. So, of course, his own day, that kind of like seals the deal, right? Either yeah. out of time, and he's described as out of time. But whenever... Gene Wolfe in this book says brighter light, great light, dawn. He's talking about the new sun. Always. Always. So this green man comes from a timeline where the new sun has come. But what is it here that he, what knowledge goes in him? The knowledge that goes in him is that Severin is the new sun and basically everything is going to be okay, right? That it's coming together as planned. That when he returns to his future or his alternate timeline, the new sun will have already come. This actually touches on my structural thought about what you brought up. So this is to elaborate on them being parallel timelines. I don't really think parallel describes it well. Um, so, uh, a funny thing that I promise isn't to the side in, in mathematics and in physics, there's something called a Poincaré recurrence time. Um, the simplest explanation of that is imagine you have a box and there's a gas in the box and you freeze time for one second and you map exactly where every single atom is in the entire box. Poincaré rec recurrence time is the time it would take for as, as things just move naturally for it to reach that exact same point again. Um, obviously, the, the less mass and the smaller the area, the smaller the Poincaré recurrence time is going to be. But there, ultimately, there are only finite places for any given atom to be. The box isn't infinitely big. It can only have so many locations. And inevitably, it will repeat. Um, some physicists think of our universe as potentially having a Poincaré recurrence time for basically the exact same reason, even though it would be fucking huge, to be fair. Um, but that's where you get on the science and the idea of the universe being reborn 
more just because if matter can't be created or destroyed and it's just shifting around, it will inevitably shift back into the same kind of conditions, even if it takes an enormous amount of time. And so this reinterprets alternate timelines as one very long timeline, potentially. Um, so like you go far enough into the future and you wind up feeling like you're in the past, but this would be like each repetition of the timeline becomes slightly different. And this is where we get a second read of the structure. If they're not a parallel series of timelines, but one long timeline where the end of one universe becomes, or not one sort universe. sort of like stacked right after each other, right? They, they, well, it becomes almost like a corkscrew. So that at any given, if you were to lay one, a stick a, against the corkscrew, all of those would be describing the same day. So like July 1st, 27 or 2021 you put the stick along there these are all july 1st 2021 but yeah. each repetition is going to be a little bit different because each universe is a little bit different and that's how i tend to read this because this also fits it this is again part of my pet theory that it fits that the green man is a pagan messiah and he gives wisdom to Severian, who isn't Christ yet, because the Book of the New Sun isn't the story of Christ. It's the story of the procession towards Christ. And that Severian, or that the maybe the current Utark is the next Severian. And this Severian is the one after that. And Jesus Christ, as we know him, is the next one after that. Because that well, also I... fits the progression of like pagan into Christian life yeah I, I i very much agree with all of that and i think the play will support your theory um and in general i think there are multiple versions of severian who have tried and failed to become the new son some of them succeeded but mm -hmm. the new son is not something that comes once it yeah. recurs right much like all... the the dawn of of a day yeah, you know the sun turns the dawn comes more than once right ideally yeah ideally so <laughs> let's leave all of that though and <laughs> I, I totally agree it's a great assignment it will serve us very well in the future another thing we need to get to before we can leave saltus is the executions which happened before the meeting with the green man just to be clear and you know, the executions themselves and what happens is also a good scene because you get the whole Severian leaps onto the stage and he's very nervous and then his sword is like, you know, that, that was in the, the, in the previous book and here he's very self-assured and he knows exactly what he's going to do and he's more like um, uh, confident in the practice of his craft and so on. But I want to touch on one specific thing, which is what purpose do the executions serve? So the person being executed morwana morwena i guess is blamed or accused sorry of killing her husband because he was having an affair with another woman or it's the other way around in any case there's a love, love triangle and the other lover of that man is in the crowd and after severian um kills the executes the the victim she literally says, I did it. I, I was the one who did it. And then she smells her bouquet of flowers and dies because it was poisoned. No one gives a fuck. Like, no one cares 
that Severian just executed an innocent person. Like later down the line, there's maybe one sentence that hints that maybe Severian thinks that person was lying, but he doesn't check. He doesn't care. Like literally that woman says, just like I'm going to poison myself, I poisoned the man. Uh, I did it all out of spite for Morwenna. I want to see her die. This is amazing. I have everything I need and now I will kill myself. And the world just walks on by. Severian doesn't even give it a notice. Now, why is that important? If you recall what we said for the, on the previous book and what Langdon just said about this being the procession towards Christ, this is all part of my uh, theory and Langdon's as well, that this is Severian being taught how to be Christ. This is Severian being taught empathy. And it's all going to culminate in the next book, spoilers, where Severian is going to abandon the role of the torturer. He's going to be given someone to execute and he won't do it and spare her life. So it started when he fell in love with Thecla, but then he had his own personal feelings. He didn't do it because it's wrong to execute someone and he didn't do it because of empathy. And here in Saltus, it's almost like a regression, right? Like he can't, he can't uh, display the same empathy that he had for Thecla for these people who are strangers. And slowly down the line, he will learn this empathy and become the new son because of this uh, process. So that's the other big thing that happens in um, Saltus. After the execution, he goes to meet the green man and then he frees him and that gets him in trouble. So um, he retires, doesn't want anyone to like, you know, mess with his shit. And both him and Jonas are... Um, Accosted. Am I remembering this correctly? God, the fucking <laughs> timeline for the books is all messed up in my head. One sec, let me just check my... I have like a little timeline thing that I... I let the book just wash over me. And then I'm like, my brain will grab what's important or not. Yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> um, whatever, whatever the reason, and I'll be honest, it escapes you right now how that fucking happens. But... Um, Severian has to, yeah, right. Jonas gets kidnapped, right? They they get like accosted by Vodolus's men, and Severian has to uh, find uh, Jonas. Oh, sorry, no, I remember now. Sorry, my bad. Is this maybe I'll edit this out? I'll I'll try. A letter arrives. That's what happens. As I'd say, I thought I thought the Jonas stuff happened closer to the woods, but yeah, 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 yeah. no, that's my bad. A letter <laughs> arrives, right, in Saltus. Telling oh shit, yeah. Yeah, telling Severian that Thecla is alive. She's alive and waiting for him in a cave of all I'm places. I'm in this cave. Just come yeah. fill up this cave with me. And he's yeah. like, that's, Jonas is like, that seems improbable. And uh, Severian's like, nah, nah, that's chill though. Yeah, that sounds like something she would do. And he <laughs> even says like, all reason abandons him and he finds the nearest horse which prefigures later for some reason, like it's someone's horse that we'll meet later. He takes the horse, sorry, Destriel, as Jean is, uh, likes to call them. I mean, there's a theory that there aren't really horses, right? Like they're bigger than the horses we know. And he does, like their he own. does confirm that in the, in the end, uh, the scare quote translators note, because the premise is that this book is from the future and Gene Wolfe has translated it into English. Um, he, he writes in the translator's note at the end of the first book that they are not get... actual horses. Yeah, you want to get really freaky? I the the actual premise 
is that when Severian launches the Book of the New Sun into space, one of those versions reaches Gene. Yeah. No, I, I knew that one. That's yeah. that's why I read in, and I mentioned before the structural thing of him putting, because he's the translator, putting the sublimated GW in the uh, SC yeah. replica. Yeah, that's that's a whole thing. Anyway, God damn this book. <laughs> anyway, so he takes the Destrier and he rushes towards this cave, never for once thinking that it would be a trap, and it is. Um, he nearly it falls for it. It is the weirdest it. trap, by the way. It is this. No, the, if I mean, you wanted way, to kill somebody, this is not the way you'd go about doing it. I mean, you'd maybe dodges, shoot him with a gun. <laughs> oh wait, wait, wait! He dodges the actual trap. Right, the, the oh, I trap forgot is, about that. I always thought the trap was like we're going to send you into a weird cave with multi-armed no, 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 manates. No, 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 no. The <laughs> idea is that once he enters the cave, they're supposed to like drop a shit ton of rocks on him, oh. but. He, he is at the last second like distracted by a gl the glinting of the claw and he ducks into the cave and it falls behind him right and he doesn't uh he doesn't die that and makes way he... more sense <laughs> yeah now if you think about who it is that's trying to kill him which we'll quickly learn is agia she has every reason to want to kill severian oh, yeah. from afar right because she knows he's, he's like this crazy sword master and also can resurrect himself or at least is wasn't poisoned by the most poisonous plant on the planet hence also um, wanting to crush him because it's like even if you come back if your body's absolutely crushed that's not going to do you any good yeah i mean even if she had succeeded i think the claw would heal him but anyway he goes yeah into but this... he would heal him but he'd be crushed between a rock and the earth so it's like he's gonna he's, he's still just stuck there this is like uh who would win batman versus superman kind of shit so <laughs> it's just that's... Move past That's fair. <laughs> so in the cave, uh, Severian meets the man apes. <laughs> this is low-key my favorite part of the book. This is, I think this is, is a, a very important part of the book. So the, you're going to meet these man apes. They're <laughs> going to be um, different kinds of like regressive humans in Soul of the Lictor called zoanthropes. And they're both, uh, and also in Thrax itself, right? There's the eclectics and the autocathons and all these different kinds of like humans. It's incredibly important because it does two things. One, it establishes the long period of the dying sun genre, just like in Jack Vance's Tales of the Dying Sun. It these people have been underground so long that they have kind of like regressed evolutionary and right? think about how long needs to pass for that to happen. But also it um, explains to us the process of the new sun as something which is not just astrophysical. It's not just about rekindling the actual physical sun. It is a cultural, metaphysical and genetical revival. The new sun will take humanity from where it has fallen into these man-apes or zoanthropes or autocathons or however you want to call them and the um, corrupt exultants and the frankly stupid and uneducated masses and will lift them back into the glory days of humanity. Basically, Severian does all of that in miniature inside of that cave with the claw. So when he reaches the cave, the man-apes are recognizably human, but 
they are ignorant, right? And they attack him. And no matter how much he fights them, they pit themselves onto him with reckless abandon. Like, they don't care how many of them die. They don't have the concept of fear because they're so far gone. So It's deliberately evocative of the early scenes from 2001, A Space Odyssey, in a lot yeah, of ways. for sure. You should think... As well as, obviously, the Morlocks from the time machine which every scene like this in all of sci-fi is referencing but yeah for sure so you should be thinking about like you know the loud noises and the violence and the gesticulating and all that stuff and then he draws the claw and they are mesmerized by it and in fact um let me read you what gene says at once the man apes rose and crouching low fled toward the farther end of the gallery silent now and swift as so many flitting bats the light went with them, for it seemed, as I had somehow feared, that the claw had flamed for them and not for me. So this whole dynamic for the books, like Severian doesn't understand how the claw works. By the way, the claw doesn't work. It's all Severian doing all this yes. shit. But here, it's a hint that, yes, indeed, it flames for them and not for him, because they are the ones who need it. They need the light of the conciliator and of the new sun to snap them out of this primal, violent, and regressive state that they are in, right? And that's what the claw does. The claw does something else, which is one of Langdon's favorite parts, so I let him take that. Awaken something else within the deep, right? Uh, yeah, it's... I'm trying to remember exactly how that part went. Let me the let me thundering steps, right? Oh yeah, he 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 hears these tremendous Balrogian footsteps deep, deep within the cave in a way yeah. that seems paradoxical given given what we know about the cave. This actually leads to something that I'm going to ask Eden in a second. Um, and it obviously, as a reader, you're you're thinking a couple things. You're thinking the Balrogs from Lord of the Rings. You're also thinking satanic figures like like nephilim um you, we've already met lovecraftian creatures and so there's these the these tangential ties of angelic or demonic seeming beings um that somehow the presence of this christ-like power uh because the claw obviously represents um the miraculous nature of Christ, not the inward part, but the, the, the miracles of grace that can, that can reform the spirit and reform the world. And this awakens an antagonism that seems to be buried deep within the earth. The satanic imagery is pretty hyperbolically present here. Um, and wonderfully, the nature of that thundering isn't really explained here. We, yeah. in, in fact, it's never fully explained. We, we get little hints of what it potentially could be, but w this remains one of the sort of lingering, lingering mysteries because all of these, say, Lovecraftian figures who represent in certain ways the Nephilim or fallen angels, they live within the sea. Um, and the Herodules, they live within space. And there's the, un the unopened question of what lives within the Earth. These... Oh. these Strange man apes are, are are like little glimpse, but oh, so, you were gonna. Yeah, my solution. What lives within the earth is what lives on the earth as well, which is the soldiers of the Utak. And mm. the thundering in the deep 
is the same tower walker that we will meet in the third book, I believe, fighting in the north for the Utak. And I'll tell you um, why um, I think that's the case. So later on, when after the whole thing happens and Agia tries to kill Severian with crossbows and Jonas helps him escape and he once again spells Agia's life because, well, he's an idiot, but also he's Christ, right? So he can't just yeah. kill her in uh, cold blood. He starts to uh, grill um, Jonas even further and he actually pisses him off and then he says one last question and this is what he asks when we were going through the wall you said the things we saw in there were soldiers and you implied they had been stationed there to resist Abia and the others those are the undines right the Lovecraftian ocean monsters are the man apes soldiers of the same kind and if they are what good can human sized fighters do when our opponents are as large as mountains and why didn't the old Utaks use human soldiers? So here's the theory. The Utark isn't stupid, right? Uh, the man-apes are the Utark's soldiers, but they're not there to fight whatever thunders in the deep. Whatever thunders in the deep is part of their contingent, right? It's a tool of the Utark as well. And when we're going to fight Abia and all those giant... Uh, well, giants, we need giant war machines like walking towers. But more importantly, this is why Severian skips the scene at the gates. The reason that Severian skips the scene at the gates is that the party is beset by Ulans, which are soldiers of the Utark, and the walls react to the violence and basically slaughter everyone inside the gate. But Severian is writing this book when he is the Utark and he knows all of these things. By the way, spoilers. <laughs> if, if we've already spoiled that, but Severian becomes the Utark. Um, it should, it knows, should be plainly apparent as well. But Yeah. But <laughs> he, knows, he knows all of these things because it's kind of like when the President of the United States changes hands and suddenly all this shit about all the war crimes that they're doing gets declassified. Suddenly you know all this stuff. Well, not declassified. You, you have the, cl the classification to access it, the security clearance. Same thing here. He skips those parts um, to protect the Utak's secrets. In fact around the thing that funders in the deep, Severian said, and then I suddenly understood what was in there. Like he says, I could figure it out. But he doesn't give us the details because he doesn't want whoever ends up reading this text, which Severian writes for his contemporaries, to learn about the secret weapons and defenses of the Utark. And this happens several times in the book. Most of the skips are to protect... Um, The textual Utahs. end, but I, guy, Jesus Christ, I never thought about that.
floor. <laughs> and all more people in there who wanted to be woken up, but their coffins are all shattered, right? And there's other technology and stuff like that um, that lies under Saltus, right? And, and Saltus is actually mining those caves. Now, which fallen civilization is being mined and from whence come all these tools that the Utark uses? I don't think we ever get a, an answer for that. We, we know that two of the previous cultures, and we'll get to that in a sec, are that, that ruled the solar system and had that kind of tech were Swedish and Korean. So it, it might be one of those um, societies, but I'm not, not 100% sure. But I do agree that the cave has some like weird time stuff going on. In fact... Severian... Um, Severian is weird time stuff and specifically weird, uh, temporospatial stuff. Yeah. So like that, that's most of the read of say the, uh, the cabin within the, uh, within the gardens in the first book is, le uh, well, the garden in general, but then it's only Severian could have found that hut because yeah. Severian seems to make time and space around him get funky. Um, in ways that he may or may not understand. There's no way really to know if he doesn't know what's happening because he's also a liar. Um, yeah. But there's something prescient about here of him meeting, like, are these devolved men or are these proto-men? Is this the moment that makes mankind? Well, I think there's, there's a way of reading that this is the, like, the Adam and Eve moment, but he doesn't know that that's what he's doing necessarily. That's later. That, that's in the play. So, <laughs> but I think here it's it's pretty uh, firmly settled to be devolved men because of what he then asks uh, Jonas. Uh, Jonas tells him that the man apes were also transformed by the technology in the mines, or as he calls them, treasures. And then Severian says, "But we outside endure the dark each night, and the treasures carried from the mines are brought to us. Why haven't we changed too?" And then Jonas did not answer, and I rem remembered my promise to ask him nothing more. Still, when he turned to face me, there was something in his eyes that told me I was being a fool and that we had changed. So the man-apes are like, this is what's coming to you if the new sun doesn't come, right? The night will be endless, and even worse, you will be contaminated by all this old tech, all this old gene manipulation with breeding with cacogens and just becoming less than human. Okay, we're almost an hour <laughs> in and we've just left the mines, so we have some ground to cover. Following like the mine excursion fight with Agia, uh, Severian suddenly remembers his like life calling or mission or whatever. Um, which is to serve Vodalus, but it's kind of a rude awakening, right? Because the um, soldiers of Vodalus find both of them first. Apparently, one of the people that Severian was involved, kind of, in the torture of, in, in the... We won't get into that. There's a whole thing there with the name of the guy that they fucking trap inside of a house, by the way. Horrible, like, method of execution. Oh, yeah. um, he was a Vodalus uh, informer or soldier, and... Severian is now perceived as the enemy of Vodulus. And he is captured and brought to uh, Vodulus, the king in the leaves, who hides, the liege in the leaves, sorry, who hides um, in a forest, uh, ducking the Utark soldiers, supposedly, because he's he works with the Utark. Um, 
And in one of the coolest scenes in the book, like action scenes, Severian and Jonas manage to like untie themselves on top of these really tall beasts and slay their guards. And then they walk into Vodalus's forest court as free men. And then something happens. And this is going to send us off on another tangent. Severian gives Vodalus the coin. The coin which um, Vodalus gives to him when he saves Vodalus's life. Supposedly, remember, because I think that um, Severian is lying when he says that he stops the axe blow. You would expect that Vodalus would be like, oh my god, you're the guy, right? Like, you saved my life. What the hell? You're here. Wow, I love you so much. But Or even just like, hey, I give these coins to people that I trust. This is a sign that yeah. I know you. Exactly. Like, and even then, a mild thing. And then he doesn't. <laughs> um, he's kind of like... like e- even more, he's like, what the fuck is this? Like, he yeah. doesn't seem to even recognize the coin, let alone... He's like, what in the fuck? It's yeah. So, <laughs> by the way, at some point, uh, Severin says that if he had known that guy was the servant of Vodolus, he would have said he wouldn't have executed them, even though that would have been a lie, because he would have executed literally anyone if he <laughs> was paid to do so. Um, but again, Severian lies, right? So, he looks at the coin, and he doesn't recognize it, and then that was the first time that I was like, wait, hold on. Why is there a coin with Vodolus's face on it to begin with? Like, that's something that a ruler does, right? And Vodolus is a rebel. So, like, is Vodolus, like, minting his own coins? That that actually happened, like, in the Middle, middle Ages when you were a rebel. One of the things you could do is take over a minting, um, minting workshop or whatever and mint your own coins to undermine the authority of the king. But... I don't really think that's what's happening here. Instead, Neither do I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. brace for it. The Vodolus that was digging up the corpse is not the Vodolus that Severian meets. I the agree, vo- kind of. You so, <laughs> so the Vodolus, kind of like Severian, there are a few Severians, and some Severians fail to become the new son. There are others jockeying for the position or jockeying for the position of Utark slash new son for the, the position of the savior. And in one of those timelines, Vodolus wins and becomes the Utark. And of course, then fails to become the new son. And now he's digging up corpses to eat them using the Elzabo to find the answer to why he's not the new son. In fact, the corpse that he's digging up is the corpse of Severian, the other Severian, who failed. He's trying to learn yeah. why he failed so that he might be able to become the new son. And that's why he that, has by a the coin. Way, that, that's a very well um, uh, grounded and very well like respected read of that for to any, to any listeners. That's sort of the agreed yeah. upon one by Wolfian people that it's like, that's why he's in the graveyard. Or yeah, that specific ex- graveyard, rather. Right. So, yeah, this whole far-fetched like, thing, that's the accepted read, right? Um, so, uh, <laughs> they, that, they don't mention it, by the way. They don't say, n- not here or later. It's just sort of, everyone's like, oh, yeah, no, no, that's got to be it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's why he has a coin. 
um, with this face on it. Confused yet? Is this like intricate enough for you? So this um, is this is where my my read, as I mentioned before, um, I'm not sure that Vodalus, Father Anire, and the Utark are different people. So uh, I, I don't I don't see that. Walk me through that. So this is where, and it ties into that. I think this is the same Vodalus, kind of, because. One of the funny things about this book is we'd have to ask not just who someone is, but when someone is. Like, the, I think he meets a Vodalus from the future in the graveyard, and this is a younger Vodalus. And that's why he doesn't recognize it, because the conditions... This Vodalus didn't give him the coin. He will give him the coin in his own future that is Severian's past. Because again, funny things happen with time and space around Severian. That's that's how I read it, at least. Um, or yeah, rather, how is how is Vodolus in there though? Um, because I think they represent the same person at different points in their life. I think the young one is Vodolus, the middle-aged one is the Utark, and the older one is Father Inire. and they meet each other in weird triplicates at different points in their life, guiding each one to the next step. Which is why I think the Utark isn't as combative towards Vodalus, except in almost playful manners, because he's like, "You are me, and I need you to do this to dethrone me to become me." Okay. Again, this isn't in the book. I'm not going to pretend that it is. But it's I like... can't. I can't say that it's totally countless, but I think that. I go like, into the wormhole instinctively. I see a wormhole, I jump yeah, into the wormhole. That's so that's totally just fine. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying you, with that one. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not saying you're wrong. I am saying though that there's like an established like hint for each appearance of the figures, and they all have different like themes associated with them. Like Inira is invariably the old creepy dude, like Hethor, Rudesind, and so on. The guy in the in the cabin in Sword Delictor. Yes, I think that's Father Inire. I don't know. It's fucking insane. Um, the Utark is androgynous and is described as an official. He wears yellow. Um, and Vodolus is uh, violent and to, associated with nature and stuff like that. But they could be in different stages of their life, and therefore they have different presentations. So they also seem to represent. So they represent in a lot of ways the three wise men. Um, because they are the three guiding figures for Severian in varying ways, like not, not quite equal ways. And there's at least the, the theological read of the three wise men mapping to the Trinity, which are the same, the same person, but in different personages, um, if that makes sense. So yeah, they, uh, yeah, I don't think either one of us can be right at the same time, but I think both of us are right. I think when explicating one of our thoughts, it leads to the other one. And then if you explicate that further, it, it gets you back to where you started. Yeah. Um, th this scene does end in Severian eating a woman. Yeah, I mean, there's the whole part. <laughs> you, you, you don't need us for that. It's a really good scene. It's really disturbing. Just to say, you know, we won't get into it because we don't have time. But Severian eats Thecla. Um, or, well, at least someone. Um, because Thecla, <laughs> Thecla isn't dead, by the way. Um, spoiler. <laughs> so he probably eats her clone, maybe. But in any case, he now has Thecla inside his head. Or does he? Is he like imagining that? Maybe. 
So, in any case, one of the uh, small details that I want to delay on because it's just fucking awesome is with the norm. So the three norms. Yeah, I, I didn't pick this up at all when I was reading it, which is I I saw your note about it and I was like, oh shit. Yeah, it, it, it's really cool. We can. This is why I said one of the empires is uh, Swedish, right? Like the solar empires. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, that, that was a trope in science fiction. If you go and read uh, Paul Anderson's Tau Zero, uh, the Swedes become, you know, because in the 70s, everybody, well, today as well, worshipping like the Nordic model, social democracy, whatever. And it's appeared like the Scandinavian countries were about to overtake the entire planet in technology and industry and stuff like that. Didn't really happen because that can only happen with communism. Um and um but Vodolus and Thea, we haven't talked about her at all. We don't have time. She's like Thecla's sister. <laughs> kinda. She's kinda she's the person that digged up the corpse with Vodolus. I kinda. think she's also a clone um of Thecla. No, I I think she's the no, I think she, they're two separate people. She's the original and we that meet would make, the clone. That would make the clone, sense. Yeah, we meet the clone in the house Azure. I just um, I think their their names being the same except for the addition. Oh shit! Thecla's the clone because the CL is the first two letters of clone. I I I don't think they're clones of each other. Thecla has like her own clone, which is the clone that Severian sleeps with in the house Azure, and Thea has her own clone, <laughs> which he meets on the stairs in the house Azure and in the house Absolute in a sec, like a few scenes. <laughs> so Thea and Vodulus are talking about the names of the planets and how earth was renamed from earth with the, with an e my accent is probably not doing a lot of work there but so the dawn men which is like the empire um that ruled the solar system first went to the red planet which was then named war obviously that's pretty heavy-handed right mars and they renamed it to verthandi and um the the Thundi, and I'm trying to do the Icelandic pronunciation, although I'm probably failing poorly, is the middle sister of the Norns, the one that is um, uh, in charge of the present, like seeing the present. And he even makes the stupid joke about now and gift, you know, like fucking Kung Fu Panda. So Gene Wolfe did it first. I right? like that, that joke about the, the present being both now and the gift. That's why it's the present. And then they went to Venus. And they renamed it uh, Urdel, which is the past. Uh, sorry, they renamed it Skuld, which is the future, right? And by association, Earth became Urth, with a U, which is the known be in charge of the past. So beyond the fact that it's just fucking awesome, um, it's also another, you know, another thematic pass at the idea of Earth being outdated, out of time, in the past, decaying, the future being elsewhere in the galaxy, humanity kind of like languishing on the planet, so steeped in artifacts and history and stuff like that. You also get Venus, the morning star, as the future, which is the new sun. Yeah, that's... Oh, that's so good. Oh. How the fuck did I miss this? Like, every time I've read this... I mean, I think your explanation of the core school was brilliant, and I, I missed that as well. Like, it's the, the right structure to, like, look at this. Another <laughs> little tidbit here is that Vodulus thinks he is serving the Undines, and the Baya specifically. He's not. He's serving the 
of course, the, um, the house absolutely serving the Utark. But extremely important is when he says to Severian not to show others um, the claw or to get close to them because once he is um, eaten of the Ozabo, they have ways um, to know that he has. And that's the first time that we get the word Hyrodules. I mention this to you because you, when you go to the House Absolute, may meet them, whom the common people call Kakogen, and the cultured extrasolarians or Hyrodules. You must be careful uh, in bringing yourself to their notice, because if they observe you closely, then they will know by certain signs that you have used the Alzabo. So, basically at this point in the book, we are given all of the forces that are operating, and I think it's useful to like recap quickly. Mm-hmm. So, the Hyrodules and the Extrasolarians um, are aliens from outside of the solar system. And they want to revitalize humanity and return them to their um, glorious past because humans uh, created the entire galactic empire. They created the tech and the AI, and that's in other places in the books. Later, we'll get to it. Um, that created the solar empire, and they need them back. Father Inire, slash the Utark, slash if you're on Team Langdon, then <laughs> Vodalus, they were supposed to be the legate, right? They're like the um, representative on mission, the consul. And they were supposed to do what the Kakogens want them to do, except if the new sun comes, then they will lose all their power. So they kind of rebel or try to play their own game. And in fact, later on in the book, it specifically said that Inira keeps the Kakogens in line under like an uneasy piece. So they're always competing and trying to like um, emerge on top. The Undines are also extrasolar entities that are somehow in combat with the Hyrodules for control, and they want to further degenerate humanity. They want to mix them with their genes and make them into subhumans, which is a very problematic term, but okay. Um, so I, I find it less problematic here because they clearly map onto the Nephilim um, yeah. and the mating with humanity to make it, who become in both Christian and Jewish theology sort of the roots of demons stalking the earth. It's, it's these angels that aren't allowed back into heaven and who re- either resent or love humanity in this weird mixture, and that's why demons torment people. Um, yeah. It does bre- breach into the problematic thing of subhumans in the fascist sense. Um, yeah, I mean, but, there's, there's, there's like literal eugenics in this book, right? Yeah. But they're more metaphysical. <laughs> I think. They, they, they like skirt the problematic nature. Anyway, so the Undines, um, those are the forces. And then humanity, of course, but they're not like an active force. And all of those forces are trying to manipulate Severian. The Hyrodules want Severian to become the new son. They know it's not predestined and it's possible that he will fail. In fact, if you read The Earth of the New Sun, he has failed, and Sadiqil went back in time, and he's the one who's been touching Severian's life. But anyway, he's in Hyrodule, so it doesn't matter. That's one interest. God, this is not confusing at all. Right? <laughs> um, then Father Inire is trying to play all sides to maintain his power, to maintain the Utarchy, to maintain his like experiments, and to just stay relevant. And then there's the Undines, who want to make sure that... So if it's not clear if Father Inira wants Severian to be the new son or not. Maybe he can be the new son and Inira can manipulate him and control him and 
that's how you'll stay relevant. And the Undines are just like flat out no, no new son, no Severian. Severian needs to die. He needs to be corrupted. He needs to be um, pushed from the path. Okay. And these represent in a lot of ways. Um, so you have obviously fallen angels or satanic influence. You have a more angelic influence through the higher duels. And then uh, Gene Wolf, despite being a great, um, a great catholic by great yeah. i mean like committed catholic i'm not catholic yeah. myself so that's not what i mean by great in that sense um father and especially with his name represents the complexities the of the church yeah. sometimes it's good sometimes it's bad sometimes it helps you sometimes it doesn't for sure okay we're not even halfway through our notes um, <laughs> and it's been like an hour so, so let's move it along so what says well, thank off- thankfully a lot of the back end stuff we can yeah, yeah. I mean, the work we just did is like important for the rest of the series, right? Because now you know who is against whom. Um, and a lot of the illusions that we made in the first episode should be clear now, right? All those interventions, stuff like that. These are the people who are intervening. Okay, so there's a bunch of stuff about how Jonas doesn't eat. This is where it needs to become apparent that Jonas is synthetic in some way, but it's about to be revealed in much more detail. Um, they make it to the to the house absolute. Yes, I'm skipping the fight with the nodules, even though it's fucking awesome. Like it's yeah, it's, it, yeah, the they, they get into a fight on the road, and as much as it's really cool, it seems pretty pretty easy to explicate thematically. Um yeah. it's it's you encounter also the first time of seeing the big walking towers and the sense of they see this fucking huge white thing. Um yeah. and they're like, What the shit? Um one of the funniest things to me when I was reading this, I recently started playing um, League of Legends and there's like a character there called Galio who's literally like a giant white statue. And I was reading <laughs> this scene while I was starting to play. I was like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> you know, echoes of the book in reality. Anyway, the important thing about the nodules, the, the shadow things that they um, attack is that once Severin uses the claw once again to resurrect someone and two, um, Jonas confirms that he's actually an astronaut. And he does that by calling himself a sailor, a sailor beyond the seas of Earth. And that means that every previous um, reference we heard to the word sailor is also actually astronaut. And who was called a sailor? Hethel. And Hethel is Father Inire. So this is kind of like where it's confirmed that Father Inire is a human who went to space and did all the fucked up weird and time dilution is a thing here, right? So like near faster than light travel, spent objective like thousands of years in space and then came back to Earth with all this crazy tech and these creatures, the nodules, the salamander later on and other creatures that attack Severian are all Hethel slash Father Inira's prodding him. Maybe he decides to kill him at some point. Anyway, we get to the... Jesus Christ, we're doing a terrible job, but... We gotta, we gotta oh, push for. We're doing the best job that we can, Eden. No, yeah, no, no Debbie Downers. This book is really <laughs> fucking weird, and we're, yeah, well, everything so, we've said makes sense. Unlike the book, the book yeah. doesn't make sense in the best way, to be fair. But, <laughs> but it doesn't make sense. So, okay, we get to one of the best jokes in the book, and one where a lot of information is revealed to us in a very roundabout way, and that's the ante room. So Severian and Jonas <laughs> get captured and they get taken to this prison 
And this oh, you forgot is... the one the one thing about Jonas before we Oh no, no, it is later. Never mind. Ignore me. It, it's now it's now in the anteroom. You, you you're gonna talk about the Korean, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was, so, I'm skipping. Yeah. So in the anteroom. So here's the thing. Why is it called the anteroom? Because it was literally the Utak's anteroom. And people waited there so long in this like suite of rooms to see the Utalk that it became a prison. Now the funniest part is when they come over to feed them and it's a cart filled with coffee and pastries. Right? Like what you'd give people waiting in line at a fancy office. Right? And they still do that because of tradition. And it's a joke, but it's also another one of those we have forgotten the past. Right? Like look how far humans have fallen. They do things out of ritual and so on. Well, there's so, also the nice little touch of before Christ coming, the gates of heaven being closed. So the people come to petition the Lord, but the doors aren't open. And so this represents in a lot of ways also like the purgatory before, you know, the ministrations yeah. in hell after Christ died, which which literally happens in a later book. Um, yeah. So those, those people are like forgotten. They'll, some of them are descendants of just people who were waiting for meetings. But the first prisoner is referred to as the navigator. And we actually get the navigator's name, Kim Lee Sung. <laughs> and when that name is said, Jonas falls apart. And we learn his story. Between those falling apart and we know the story, they get attacked basically by people like Thekla, exultants, who come in to lash the prisoners there with energy whips, which is just awful, and just as, as a laugh, right? They do it just to torture them, which it's is another... awful, but it's also really sick because they have energy whips. Yeah, but it's another nail in the coffin <laughs> of the exultants, right? Um, not exactly benevolent nobles ruling this perfect feudal society, but rather cruel and decadent um corrupt uh a, a corrupt class basically so jonas is injured and it's clear to all before severian heals him with the claw that he is mechanical and jonas spills his um story so this is where it's finally confirmed that sailors are astronauts and basically when jonas's ship came back to earth they discovered that humanity had collapsed the port or all of the ports that are able to support a ship's landing were gone and they were forced to crash land. Um, whereupon Jonas was injured and repelled with biological material. He's not an android. He's a full-on robot. But because there weren't any parts anymore, because society had collapsed, they were forced to use biological means to um, resuscitate him. So his ship crashed back into Earth, and the navigator, Kim Lee Sung, is Jonas's uh, ship's navigator. Jonas leaves the crew and goes to travel Earth looking for a way back into space, basically. And the navigator goes to the Utark. Right, take me to your leader. Um, he or she, it's hard for us to know, right, because Asian names um, don't operate quite as gentle as ours. Um, uh, they find the Utark, try to petition the Utark because maybe they figured out that Father Inire or the Utark or whoever was the Utark back then, um, yes, Father Inire is like centuries old, um, 
has the technology to get back into space, but they end up in the anteroom. Okay? Confusing? <laughs> but Jonas, um, in his labs, starts to talk, the, speak this nasal and monosyllabical language that describes Korean, which is a very nasal language. And together with the name of the navigator, of course, Jonas is a fake name, right? Um, Kim Lee Sung, we understand that basically there was another solar empire, in this case, a Korean one, and that Jonas was um, part of it. Okay, up until now, this is all like wildly accepted. Now we get to the Eden theory. So the little girl in the anteroom, there's a little girl, she figures later in the books, but she's not important right now. She says that when the navigator was buried, and this is word of mouth, right? There were black wagons and people in black clothes walking in the procession. Does that sound familiar to anyone? People wearing black? Those are tortures, right? Perhaps brought in to execute the navigator so that they can't spill the Utark secrets or talk about what's out outside of Earth. But more importantly, it works into my theory that the Torturers Guild is actually in the far past. And that's why people don't recognize Severian. Right? They're of that time. And from Jonas's words, it's hinted that it's centuries ago. Right? So that's just another little piece that puts the Torturers Guild in the past. Anything else about the anteroom? I, I like the pun that it's uh, the ante room uh, and it's because they, they chill there forever, um, which is obviously <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the more apparent um, bit of the joke. And it's, it's just weird when this book is just like, oh, here's the dad joke. And you're like, what? Like in the middle of all this confusing shit, we've been explicating it for, for a good bit now. Um, almost done by the way, dear listener. Um, but but yeah, in the middle of it, you're just like, you're scratching your head. You're like, how many timelines are intersecting right now? And he's like, uh, well, how many months have 28 days? And you're like, what? Yeah. February. It's like, no, it's all of them, idiot. And you're like, Gene, why? Why did you do that just now? <laughs> yeah. So using um, Thekla's knowledge, which he has because of the Ozabo, um, Severian finds like an escape hatch and manages to make good their escape into the house absolute. The first thing that happens is that Jonas finds like a teleporter device <laughs> or father in Nero's mirrors and he's like, Well, fuck all you bitches. Just <laughs> walks into the teleporter, which is this is what he's been looking for all that time, right? Um, <laughs> but maybe he couldn't do it without Severian or he didn't have the courage. He steps into the teleporter and sh- really- teleports. I really like when Severian's like, wait, where are you going? And he's like, uh, shut up. And just teleports <laughs> away. <laughs> yeah. He has like this monologue about fate or whatever. And then he just like, beam me up, It's Scotty. a fancy way of him just biding time. for Because we get a scene early in the last book that it takes a bit for the mirrors to boot up. So I always read that as him just biding time as he's looking over to see how. And then when it gets ready, he's like, anyway, um, fuck off, man. And just teleports back into his spaceship. Yeah. So Severian is now wandering. It rocks. He's wandering the house absolute. Mm-hmm. He's looking for a way out. Um, he doesn't want to get caught. He does he a gets, pretty... He's about to have a really fucked up, confusing... Is this when he winds up in the... Uh... Yeah, it is. This is when he winds up in the stacks, right? 
in the library? Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, wait, hold on. Okay. A, f- a few things, a few <laughs> things happen in the house absolute and I'm going to cr- crunch them all into one so that we don't get like really um, bad on time. So he meets Thea's clone that he met in the house Azrael. Note where he meets her on a staircase, just like the first time. He meets Rudesind, the guy who is cleaning the pictures from the first book, aka Father Inire. And he meets the Utark. But when he meets the Utark, he finds out that the Utark and the guy running the house Azure, which he's already seen, are the same guy. All of which to say, remember when in the first episode, or was it? episode zero, where we said that the Citadel and the House Azure and the House Absolute share spaces. These are your confirmations. When he talks to Rudesend, Rudesend literally tells him, hey, remember that painting that I was cleaning? And he's like, yeah, of course, the one with the desert reflected in the gold visor of a man in the armor, which is the moon landing. And he's like, yeah, want me to show it to you? <laughs> It came out <laughs> quite nicely. And, and Severin's like, but we're not in the same place. That was in the Citadel. This is the house absolute. And Rudersen like completely ignores it and says, it's down here always somewhere. Because it is. Because those places are contingent in space. Another thing. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going. I'm just going. I'm just running through this. So he meets the Utark. That's a huge fucking deal, right? <laughs> Two things happen with you. Well, three things. There's the part where he opens a book and sees a fucking space butterfly. Super cool. I don't think it has to do with the storyline. It's just cool. It's like this butterfly surfing solo winds. And it kind of like tells you the... the... <laughs> he, he, sees, he sees a holographic pog in a book and he describes the little funny <laughs> butterfly on the pog. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's a pog. I think it's like actually like because the Utark is Father Rhaenyra, it's like Father Rhaenyra's mirrors. Like, they're actually yeah. seeing this creature um, from beyond I'm just space saying, like, I'm just saying, like, what structurally it is. He's like, yeah, hey, look sure. at this. It's cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, two other important things happen um, with the Utark. One, a bit smaller, um, the Utark recognizes the call and refrain of Vodulus's, um secret password meaning that the Utark is Vodulus's inside man inside the House Absolute, confirming that Vodulus is the Utark's servant, like we said. Now, there's, there's um, Langdon's reading, which is totally legit, that they're the same person and the Utark is kind of like shepherding him or mentoring him or whatever. And there's my reading that the Utark is, is just a tyrant and he's fabricating a rebellion so that he can then crush the rebellion and, you know, every, every tyrant needs an enemy. And if you don't have an enemy, you invent one. There's also something about potentially the Catholic read of, uh, of the devil being like yeah. a necessary part of God's plan. And, uh... God, God created Lucifer. Yeah. Um, right. But then the other interesting thing, <laughs> and it's one word, is that someone finally says, Kaibit. Um, Kaibit is a name for a clone. So the Utark says, you came but once, by the way, funny 
play on World's Hill. He came to the house but once, and he also came there once, right, when he had sex with a clone. Um, and then the, I'm sorry, that's a stupid joke. Um, no, no, it's it's not. No, that rocks. Yeah. So he says. When we edit the, this, put Hall Echo on that joke. Make it huge. <laughs> sure. Maybe I'll edit the entire episode and then you do the echo part. Um, <laughs> so, and then he says, the Kybit did not please you then. And so the Kybit is the clone. Now, what the fuck is a Kybit? So if we Google the word Kybit, I'm not going to pretend like I'm an Egyptologist and I just knew this. <laughs> um, it basically means knowledge of Egyptian. Yeah. Uh, in the like e Egyptian metaphysical mythological like structure, it's the shadow of your soul. And in general, in, in, in certain dialects of Arabic, it means shadow. So it's probably Kybit or something like that. Now, Langdon, can you answer a question for me? Uh, uh, yeah. What's the title of the first book? Oh, that one was uh, what's uh, the shadow of the torturer. Yeah. Right. Severian is a clone. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So the torturer is the original Severian who failed to become the new son because he stayed the torturer. Severian is his clone who is now being manipulated by the Hyrodules so that he ceases to become the torturer and becomes the conciliator. This is actually son. our first hint that Thecla is in fact not dead because we look back at how calm all of the people above him were about him violating their biggest precept, which is letting someone die outside of outside of what they were uh, supposed to be uh, judicially, um, which is maybe our first hint that Thecla isn't actually dead and that this was in fact all a grand kind of conspiracy. Right. So it comes to me now, and this is like literally I the first time I'm thinking of this, that the original Severian just killed Thecla. He chose being a torturer over his love and his empathy. And that's why he stayed a torturer, because he never left the guilt. And then the Hyrodules come back and say, okay, okay, okay. If we can't get him to not kill Thecla, we'll do it for him. And that will trigger his exile, and we'll have time to work on him and make him the conciliator. This also explains how he is able to go to his own uh, crypt. Um, and we get we get a scene later in this book of another previous Severian that I don't think is the same um, Severian as either of them, implying that this has right. been a repeating process that they've gotten better and better at, but haven't quite nailed yet. Um, it is really funny in this the sequence in the basement of the House Absolute that literally... Rudsind is telling him, you're in the basement of your own house. If you wanted to go home, I can literally take you back to the Tower of the Tortures. You can just go home. And Severian, being a really daft dummy, is like, what? No. No way. <laughs> yeah. Like, Gene so... Wolf is hammering us over the head with the fact that, and we mentioned this in both Episode 0 and Episode 1, that these are both the same place they're perhaps different times but they're the only way to really make sense of this is and this also ties into the entrance way into the house absolute where it feels like you're at the center at any given moment is it's almost like the ships that are the house absolute and the witch's tower and the um and the torturers guild and all that are a kind of like singularity driven extra dimensional ship this more or less gets confirmed in earth of the new sun but these are our 
are little glimpses of like this isn't just like a it isn't just a big maze like being you're actually passing through either like teleporters or like surreptitious time machines and little things like that yeah so okay great by the way, that's why I think Vodalus, the Utark, and uh, What's-His-Face can be the same guy, because they're the same dude walking around the same thing at different... Whatever. We'll have this fight forever, <laughs> Eden. <laughs> so instead of doing that, we'll push forward. That's true. Um, <laughs> so, awesome. He's able to push through the House Absolute. There's the whole thing with the fountain. We're not going to get into the fountain. The fountain tells the future. Awesome. It's not the first time something is told the future. But the, the, the important bit is that um, guess who's back? Talos and Baldandles and Jolenta and Dorcas and all those guys. The troop has been invited to this big uh, feast at the House Absolute. Totally by coincidence. It's not like the Utark knew specifically that Severian would be in the House Absolute. It's not like this is all being engineered, right? It is. Um, and the whole gang reunites, and it's a happy story. Um, Severian is very happy to re-meet with Dorcas and all those other guys. And we get a few tidbits of information. First of all, let me do the Langdon and do the Christ part of this. <laughs> uh, Dorcas literally tells Severian the following. You're not really deaf, you know. No matter how often he calls you that, that's Talos. You're no more deaf than a butcher is because he cuts the throats of steers all day. To me, you're life. And you're a young na a man named Severian. And here it comes. And if you wanted to put on different clothes and become a carpenter or a fisherman, no one could stop you. She could have literally chosen any profession. <laughs> but she chose carpenter and Fisherman, as in the fisher of men, right? So the the, the yeah, Jesus, yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the the Christ references are getting pretty heavy-handed. Um, the other thing we get confirmation on is that Baldandles made Talos, uh, because Dorcas in the same conversation says just the same. That's how they act, like a slow-thinking, hard-working father with a brilliant, erratic son. At least so it seems to me. Now remember that. Um, Dorcas is innocence, right? She's the babe, as in truth from the mouth of babes. So whenever she says something like that, and she, at least it seems to me, that's the truth, right? Um, not always face value, but it is the truth. Okay. I hate this. Yep. Now we got to do the play. We could have done a whole episode on the play. Yeah, and it, uh, this is one of the things that we, why we had the preface. There are certain bits that when reading are going to be bigger and more momentous than we could dive into without doing a million. Oh, yeah. Like we just uh, like ran through parts of the book that on my Kindle are like all highlighted because they all have like little tidbits and really good passages. Um, but the play. So remember how in the first book, Severian's like, eh, forget the play, whatever, let's just, it's a play. And at some point, me and Baldandles fight. Now we actually get the play itself, right? 
Um, and there's a really cool passage uh, that's a very in. He's such a melodrama. He's such a such a. He's 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 so addicted to drama. He says that he's going to tell us how the play uh, was as recorded by the demonic witness who dwells behind my eyes. C- come on, dude. Right. Take 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 a chill pill. It's fine. So <laughs> in the play, dog, you edgy, <laughs> very edgy, very goth. Um. In the play, we basically <laughs> get the events of the Book of the New Sun. Um, but if you think about Langdon's corkscrew metaphor, we get like a sideways version of them from somewhere else on the repetitive infinite timeline. We get an Utark. We get an Adam and Eve. We get a Baldanders, like a, he's called Nod here, right? We get a giant, a menacing giant. We get an Inquisitor and a Torturer and all the little details of the Book of the New Sun. This is also like in, in, encapsulated. This is the story of the entirety of the Bible. Um, yeah. It, uh, Nod also can potentially... Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You have a note of it here. Nod represents um, the the giants of the Bible, who are the Nephilim. So, of course, they're partly the Undines, and then you have partly bald. It's when oh. Eden said that you can pick apart this one chapter and yeah. get. And th- this also refers to what I mentioned of the fractal pattern of of the entire book and the very um rhizomatic pattern. Literally, the entire book is contained in this chapter in the yeah. middle of the second book. Yeah, so let's break it down quickly. What do we <laughs> learn? What do we learn from the play? And what does it You're tell like, us? About let's the break book? it down, and I'm like, "Good lord, no!" <laughs> yeah, yeah, because everything I said about the genetic stuff, the new sun being a cleansing force of that, is it's all in here because the fucking book is in here. So, first of all, the new sun has come and gone multiple times, and that goes back to the corkscrew thing that Langdon mentioned. Like they say in the play that this is not the first time that it's happened it repeats itself it's like before gabriel blows his horn like gabriel is specifically mentioned um before the beginning and the end and then the beginning sorry before the end and before the new beginning again and again and again um when this happens like this new sun thing there's usually also a flood which again ties it into the bible right what the hell is that Something's making weird noises outside my house. Yeah, I was like... It's it's a dog. I was like, that sounds either like a dog or like a child's bicycle, because it was honking. Yeah, I don't know, it stopped. It sounds like the El Zabo, holy shit. Um, We're summoning them. Yeah. Uh, uh, spoiler. Anyway, so, Flood. Um, and when this comes, uh, humanity is reshaped, and reborn and the new sun can be manipulated just like we know right these figures in the book are trying to control how the new sun comes and when nod aka the undines has mixed his blood with humans his son will take my daughter to wife it is an honor our family has done little to deserve we are only humble people the children of gaia not gaia Right, so a different place, but we will be exalted 
with the U. So now all of the fucking alarm bells are going off, and you remember that exultants are taller. As in the blood of humans mixed with the blood of giants. Right? This is exactly what uh say um Goliath from the Bible was supposed to be as well. Yeah. For those of you at home. <laughs> yeah, keeping track of the biblical references. So and then the exultants, the sons of Nod, the son and the daughter of Nod in the play say, the new sun is coming and we shall melt like dreams. So when the new sun returns, humanity Oh, I didn't will... know they were Death Heaven fans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when the new sun comes, it will cleanse humanity of its genetic impurity and restore humanity to its um, rightful place as the rulers of the solar system and beyond. Um, onwards. So when the new sun comes and when it did come, there was a flood, right? And Earth became Ushas. Ushas is the name of a Vedic goddess of life and her name means dawn. So again, the references and so on. And there are many ways that this can happen. It can happen successfully. It can happen unsuccessfully. I'm saying this because the version at the end of this book of Severian is an example of an unsuccessful new sun sort of thing. Um, Severian, like our Severian, is in the play <laughs> because in the fourth book, he's going to travel through time to when the play happens. Are you confused yet? Um, there's a point in the play where I think it's Meskia who's yeah. in the um, Road of El, the Corridor of El, which is how the House Azure and the Citadel and all that shit um, uh, share space. She's in there and she looks outside and she sees a slim person with broad shoulders, elegantly dressed. That's Severian, our Severian, in the play that he also plays in. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, her name's also a uh, very, very close to the uh, Hebrew term for Messiah, which is uh, like Meshiach. Um, yeah. So it's, he's laying it on thick here. He is thick. Yeah, very thick. So <laughs> that's all the tidbits. Now, what the fuck is this play? <laughs> so uh, this is one when Eden and I definitely agree on something. It's got to be true. Yeah. So. I, I don't want this to be true, but it is. In Earth of the New Sun, Severian is going to be on a ship. And he's going to take the book that he wrote, aka the Book of the New Sun, and he's going to fling it into space and time. And from then on, there are copies of the book reverberating through time. There's one in Ultan's library. That's a very touches, by the way. That's one of the theories of one of the books that he opens. There's uh, Gene Wolfe's copy, from which we know the story because he quote unquote translated it. And there's this copy that Talos somehow finds and writes the play um, based on it. So this is kind of like a twisted, alternate, messed up version of the book of the new sun i think that is also how the uh herodules know to focus on severian 
because they have a copy as well. Yeah, totally. Because um, because the again, we're going to go back to my favorite well, the Bible. Um, uh, it's weird. I'm not religious at all, but I gotta. Oh, it's a good ass book. Um, the Book of the New Sun is the Bible, and so it's the Jesus is the Word made flesh. Um, and this can be reversed that. Uh, that by by his ascension, Severian makes knowledge of the process of his ascension, the book, the book of the new sun, which is itself the Bible in many literal ways. Um, he makes that known to the people who would then manipulate him to get him there. Yeah. So it's all, okay. it's all part of the plan, which is fucked up. <laughs> We're getting to the end. Deep breath. Let's get it done. Oh, yeah. So the troop do the play. Bald Anders goes ape mode, um, like his giant part, whatever, <laughs> awakens within him, and he takes it too far, and he uses the same tricks that these guys used on the peasants, but he does it on the fucking Kakogens in the audience, and they freak out, and they take off all their masks and fake skin. It's like one of the best parts <laughs> of the book. And they show the eldritch horror kind of like nature in full and everybody scatters and all hell breaks loose and they all run um and basically exit the house absolute um by the way that's in the play remember the first in the first book what we did get of the play which was bald adults taking a torch and then going ham that's literally what just happened okay so in the part where, so, so the troop meets again and they split up the money that the Utark gives to them, a high official, and Talus hints at Severian's highly placed friends, aka the Hyrodules. Um, there's a lot of stuff that goes on there, especially we find out that Bald Andals can regenerate and that he's still growing. Um, so he's doing some sort of like genetic stuff on himself to like become an undyne or some shit later confirmed by the undyne that Severian meets that's in a second but there's one passage in particular that I want to read to you and not gloss over which is when Dorcas um, describes the conciliator to Severian and at this point you don't need us to tell you that it's <laughs> it's a Christ figure right um, <laughs> just listen to how she she describes him no one knows much about him Oh, why, by the way, the conciliator is Severian. Right? Uh, Severian in the past slash future. No one knows much about him, and I probably know less than you do. I don't even remember now how I learned what I know. Anyway, some people say he was hardly more than a boy. Some say he was not a human being at all. Not a cacogen, but the thought, tangible to us, of some vast intelligence to whom our actuality is no more real than the paper theaters of the toy sellers. The story goes that he once took a dying woman by the hand and a star by the other, and from that time forward, he had the power to reconcile the universe with humanity and humanity with the universe, ending the old breach. He had a way of vanishing, then reappearing when everyone thought he was dead, reappearing sometimes after he had been buried. He might be encountered as an animal, speaking the human tongue, and, appeared, and he appeared to some pious woman or other in the form of of roses <laughs> so again of course the christ image and reconciling humanity with the universe right. and universe with humanity that's the, that's the heavy... unbearably thick here yeah, yeah with that but what i want you to remember is reappearing sometimes after he had been buried sounds like someone we know yeah 
anyway. We also have the roses, which imply that the uh, the plants that they had dueled with, perhaps, um, mm. are in many ways a form of him. And that's why they duel with the roses, whether they know it or not, because this is... And that's why it doesn't seeking... kill in. Exactly, because that's how they know that's him. It, yeah, it's... Yeah. The so... machinations of 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 the Hyroduels uh, are literally given to us over and over and over again throughout all of the books, like literally continuously. Yeah. Okay. Second to last scene. We're going to skip over the Theseus thing. There's just like a retelling of Theseus in there. Yeah. Um, with the ship and killing, not the Minotaur, just like a huge ogre. It's, it, it's really good, by the way. It's really, really good. The mage creating a son from his own dreams and that being Theseus, super fucking good. Anyway. Skip over that. Read the book. It's really good. They leave the house Azure, and by them I mean Dorcas and Jolenta, because Talos and Baldans are like, fuck all this shit. We just came to collect enough money to rebuild our castle, whatever. And they have one quick note on the Theseus story. It's literally a flash one. The uh, guy making a son from his dreams is a direct nod to a Borges story called The Circular Ruins. Yeah. Fucking incredible. Worth reading. Hundred percent. Yeah. Totally. It's super good. The, The entire the entire story is uh, very yeah, good. Yeah. Um, and very magic realist, right? Which is, again, a Borges thing. So, Severian meets an Undyne on the shores of a river. And it's a really good scene. Like, the Undyne tries to kill him. Right? It tries to, like, lure him into the water <laughs> and <laughs> This dumbass straight up doesn't even realize that it's trying yeah. to kill him. <laughs> doesn't even realize. But there's a few things confirmed here which are important. One is... The Undines want to kill Severian if they cannot corrupt him. Um, If they can corrupt him, they would rather do that. But if not, then they will kill him. Um, The other is the whole Baldanders connection. Like the Undine says, we watch the giant because he grows in that he is like us. And like our father, husband, Abaya. Eventually he must come to the water when the land can bear him no longer. Right? So that's the whole like thing confirming that Baldandles is somehow like an undying. Maybe he's like a human, um, an exultant, extending like the the effect of the undying genes on him or something like that. Um, and then there's, sorry Langdon, but confirmation that <laughs> the undying saved Severian in the river rather than Severian yeah. resurrecting I'd himself. I'd forgotten like, about it until I fucking read this again. And I was like, God, uh, I was yeah. hoping you wouldn't bring it up. So the Undyne says, this is just a really good part where she says, you have a crown, though you know not of it yet. Do you think that we, who swim in so many waters, even between the stars, are confined to a single instant? We have seen what you will become and what you have been. That's like a really important sentence, right? Because again, it confirms to us this corkscrew theory, right, of time existing at the same time, I guess, um, and all these stories happening together. Um, only yesterday, you lay in the hollow of my palm, and I lifted you above the clotted weed, lest you die in Gayol, saving you for this moment. That is... The I didn't line want you where to... I get owned. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want you to die then, so that I could meet you now, and try to corrupt you. And she knew this moment would come, right? Because they can see both the future and the past. The last thing we have to do, before we go to the Cumaean and the last scene in the book is the whole Julanta thing. And 
I don't like it, Langton. I don't either. I don't like the Trelanta thing. I get the point that he was trying to do. He's trying to show that this isn't Christ. This is a worse version on the path to the Annunciation. This is someone who makes horrible foibles and which, but like Jesus, dude. Yeah. So this refers to like two things. One, we glossed over a part in the house absolute where the two meet again, where Severian drugs Cholenta and rapes her. And then the other part, which is terrible, you know, Jolenta is described as this very luscious and voluptuous woman. And by the river, we find out that it's all surgery. Like she's had all these things implemented and her bones manipulated and her facial structure. And like, I'm going to say makeup, but it's like chemical manipulation of her skin and all that stuff. The thing of it is closer to like Botox or something. Yeah. And it all starts to fail. And then she dies. I really don't like the way that he like chose to handle this character. And I get it. Like you said, it's like a worse Mary of Magdalene, right? Um, and also speaks to, like again, the deprivation of humanity and how they use technology for these vain means. I just, I don't like it. it yeah, it's, it's, it, it's definitely an element of this book that doesn't hold up nearly as well. All the yeah. literary components hold up very well, but this... Yeah. Especially because it gets presented as her like being tricksome, yeah, which is gross. Like it's not it's not a trick that is her body after these processes. That's like no one goes like you're tricking me because you're an adult person. Meanwhile, when you were two, you were a baby. Um, you know that's not no. It's like that was my body then. This is my body now. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, the fact that the fact that a lot of these old sci-fi figures were like conservative dudes um, shows up suddenly here in a way that's yeah that sucks. It sucks. So, glossing over that, we arrive at the final scene of the Club of the Conciliator, and it's extremely weird. It's very weird. The first two times I read this, I had no idea what was going on. Even the second time, I was like, how does this fit in? And then when I read it now, I was like, okay, it's time to like stay up until 3 a.m., read Reddit, and finally figure this shit out. So there's a town of stone where Severian arrives. And who should he find but the badger, Hildegrin, Vodalus's agent, who... Um, uh, not swam, who uh, took them, rowed a boat to the island of the Avil in the first book. And the Cumaean. We've heard that name because she has a cave in the botanical garden and she is the head witch. She also has an apprentice who speaks for her, Merin, with a Y. Some people think that Merin is like another person who's related to Severian, but I've never really... Um, dug that theory. And there so a few weird things. One, the Cumaean insists that someone is with Severian, like that someone is watching Severian or is with Severian. Maybe that's like a Hyrodule reference, right? Like she feels their energies on them. And the second thing is the Cumaean is an alien, right? Yeah. Like at some point, Sever- Severian says that uh, the Cumaean is a snake with a thousand eyes. 
Um, even though he's supposedly talking about the mythological figure and not the actual witch in front of him, but we know how much that's worth, right? Um, in the Book of the New Sun. So I'm not 100% sure how she fits in. Like, she's a Kakogen, but on whose side is she? Because Hildegrin says that she serves the father in Nire. And Severin is like, yeah, that's a bit weird. And he's like, yeah, she holds him a few favors and she's playing all sides. I because have... She- yeah. A specific read of her that um that answers us. So when he walks up to the Kamean, he sees three figures. Um, one middle-aged, one young, and one seemingly large. And then when they climb up there, they only see two. Yeah. And there's a big to-do about like, no, there's only two of us. Um I read these as the Norns. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, that's where it makes sense for them to be unaligned or to feign alliance that may or may not actually be there because that would and i i thought of that before i before you brought up the norn thing about um earth mars and venus yeah. so it seems like he's just laying it on thick there that it's like her job is to see the future and she may or may not even know that she doesn't really have an alignment in this that she is just a facilitator of the dialectical flow of history itself, not of any one specific end. And so that's where I think that the thousand, I think also all three women are maybe the same. And so the thousand eyed one is like the Kumeyans actual form, not a young middle-aged or an old larger woman. Although there's another read that the third person that he sees is actually father Anire as Hildegrin before Hildegrin announces himself and so it's like the Kumeyan doesn't know that Hildegrin is there and it could be both of those who knows man (laughs) so basically what happens is that they're waiting for Severian and they're going to use they don't say this but they're going to use Severian to link up with another version of his one of the coolest parts is when the Kumeyan says no one on earth can really do that but there's someone on Mars that can do that I can see the past and the future, and we're going to use this ritual to link with them. She says, in this world, no, yet such a mind exists. Look where I point, child, just above the clouds. The red star there is called the fish's mouth, and on its one surviving world, sorry, not Mars, just on Beetlejuice or something, right? And on its one surviving world, there dwells an ancient and acute mind. And then she links them all up, and she kind of like, astral projects into this mind that's not on Mars, right? It's like halfway across the galaxy somewhere. Um, And I guess if we uh, fish's mouth might be like a constellation thing, like if you look at Pisces, maybe there's a red star there and like Gene Wolfe is giving you the location, you can read it. It may just be like the name of like, if you translate the name into English of one of these places, you know. Yeah, I leave it as an exercise to the listener, right? Um, And they all linked and they do the ritual and they summon or tap into or revive um, this guy called Apu Punchao, who is, guess who? <laughs> Severian. The name of uh, the, the name Apu Punchao means the head of the day. That is the dawn. Now here's my theory. He's the conciliator. He is the Severian that never became the new son. 
not a torturer, another Severian, and he's the one that's buried in the mausoleum, right? But that's why they'd want his knowledge. Um, exactly. Because he's, yeah. So they're tapping into this guy, who's the only guy who can see them. That's how we know he's Severian, right? All the other dudes in the village or whatever can't see them, but this guy can. Um, one sec. So th- this guy can, just making a note. Um, which tells us he's Severian, but also we know about him, the Crimean says this when they're talking about it in Hildegrin as well, that he disappears and reappears for the people of his time, just like Dorcas described the conciliator, and that at one point he disappears forever, and his civilization that he helped build in this past future of the Earth collapses. That like fits the conciliator to a T, right? So he's... So we have Severian Yusan. That's our Severian. We have Severian Conciliator. That's Severian Apu Punchal. And then we have Severian Torturer, who's this failure that we never get acquainted with because he's not interesting. He just stays the torturer. And we have Severian Green Man, who's like from a weird alternate timeline where the new sun makes everything biological. And that's where this fucking book ends. <laughs> it's it's really wonderful how it legitimately just stops. It's like Severian looks at his watch and it's like, oh shit, I gotta get to Thrax. Anyway, see you next time. And then it's just done. And then he also he has to do he has to be passive aggressive, right? And say, I know it's really hard reading, so if you don't want to keep reading, that's totally fine and you can stop. Fuck you, dude. I'm gonna read this book until the very last word. <laughs> okay. So to recap, and an end, Claude the Conciliator is a turning point in the series because it links the first book that establishes the setting and establishes the characters with all of the metaphysical, political, and religious under-slash-overtones that the series has. In many ways, it's like one of the most mystical of the four books. I mean, Earth of the New Sun is the most mystical, right? Yeah. But out of Shadow, Claw, Sword, and Citadel, Claw is the most mystical and the weirdest. It's called Claw of the Conciliator because the Claw it prefigures a lot in Severian's thoughts and appears many, many times in the book, and he uses it the most in this book than any other book. Um, it's a weird one. Like, the first time I read this book... Clove the Conciliator is the one that like nearly broke me because I was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, actually, what's happening? Um, unlike Shadow, that which is confusing, but you can follow the plot even if you're not reading the subtext. With Claw, like you get to the play and you're like, excuse me? What? <laughs> uh, I guess. And then with the Utark and Rudison and all that shit, like I completely lost myself. But now it's actually, it might be my favorite of the four. Like, it's so heavy-handed. <laughs> it's so um, literary and filled with all these illusions. Um, when you have that peek behind the scenes, it's it's a ride. It's That, that thrills yeah. me to hear. This one has been my favorite since 
forever. So we, uh, the, one of the biggest uh, bones that Eden and I have to pick with each other is you get an English degree or a philosophy degree and you come away with one of two opinions. You love Moby Dick, hate Moby Dick. And yeah. we're on opposite sides of that fence. We don't need to rehash that now, but uh, yeah. I like this for the same reason that I like Moby Dick and honestly can see it being cha not challenging as in like too hard for people, but challenging to enjoy for the same reason that Moby Dick can be challenging to enjoy. Like you can get what he's doing, but be like, man, shut the fuck up. Like, like even yeah. at a certain point during this was like, all right, Langdon, just say the Christ stuff and then we can move on. But <laughs> it's because in this one, he's the most knocking you in the nose with it. And for me, yeah. it's just, that's always sort of fit my taste of what sci-fi can do of having these like really densely nested, densely symbolic commentaries on the world and history and futuricity. Like this book is not about a plot. The plot of this book is he very nearly gets to the place that he was going to at the end of book one. Yeah. Like if you think about it, less happens here than happened in the first book. And books three and four are hyper momentous compared to this one. But yeah. it's because of that, that this one takes on this like meditative, like glowing aura that especially if you've reread, if you're rereading this one, it's sort of, becomes clear to you like oh some authors say they plan out a 10 book series well ahead of time and anyone who's written anything knows that like maybe you have a loose outline but that's not really how writing works this book feels like holy fuck he had this whole thing mapped out as much as one maps out a mystery at least yep god totally it's beautiful great. yeah it's great so okay um that's it for this one <laughs> the next one god knows where it's gonna when it's gonna come out but the next one is sword of the lictal which as we said is the nature book um there's a lot of mountains and traveling but also weird ass creatures more severians potentially definitely more father Ineres, and more action and more claw and a bunch of other stuff. So look forward to that one. There's a lot of like back story in Sword about the world. Um, and with that, let me end this discussion before we get into the music with the short snippet that appears at the beginning of Claw of the Conciliator. But strength still goes out from your thorns and from your abysses, the sound of music. Your shadows lie on my heart like roses, and your nights are like strong wine. So maybe hints of some of the Persian poets there, like Rumi or Hafiz. But a very um, poignant way to open a book about caves and weapons going boom in the dark. And as for music, today I want to introduce you to a band from the United States called Terminus, who are scheduled to release their third album, The Silent Bell Toll, in August. And I have not been able to stop listening to these guys ever since I first heard the debut single from this album, Black Swan, which I want to play you today. These guys come from this... Um, milieu of like low pan torch floor bands like that so like think poppy 
in the sense that the vocals tend to be sweet and there are some major grooves built into the groundwork of this and that meets sludge, stoner, doom and heavy metal. So really in that like low pan torch, maybe Netherlands is another good comparison. So you expect this very, you know, heavyweight and dour tone from Doom. But instead these guys mix it up with a lot of um, chromatic sounds and tones and sweetness and stuff like that. Literally, I've listened to the Silent Belt all like twice a day for the last like week and a half. I'm seriously addicted to this album. And Black Swan, which I'm going to play, is one of the better tracks off of it. So enjoy, and we'll see you next time for Sword of the Lictor. This is Terminus with Black Swan. (laughs) 